Now, it will definitely help you to have uh, your Bible open at Job uh, 4 to 7. Because it's a long uh, stretch, we're going to be referring uh, to verses as we go through. So if you can follow on uh, looking at your Bible, uh, then that will help you greatly, as always, to do that. Near the town of Burton on the water in the Cotswolds, they all have fantastic, uh, fantastically quaint names in that part of the country. Bolton on the water, uh, and beside that, there is a little village called Great Rissington, with a little church in the centre. Hundred years ago, William and Annie Soul uh, lived in Great Rissington. Uh, they had nine children. Six boys, three girls. During the Great War of 1914 to 18, five of the boys became soldiers. In 1916, Albert, Frederick and Walter were killed. And in 1918, the twins, Alfred and Arthur, were killed. The sixth son, Percy, was too young to fight. But he died in 1923 of meningitis. So within the space of eight years, William Soule had lost six sons, five of them in battle. And every Remembrance Day uh, in that church, St. John the Baptist in Great Rissington, their names are still read out. Now, if you had been living in the Cotswolds a hundred years ago, how would you have comforted Mr. and Mrs. Soul? Sounds a little bit like uh, a question in a biblical counselling exam, but we find these kind of uh, situations in different guises, uh, in less extreme forms, uh, usually, uh, in everyday life. How do you uh, come alongside uh, people who have, are going through uh, dreadful anguish. Now, Job, Job suffered uh, to a much greater extent even than poor Mr. and Mrs. Saul. Job lost his farm, his family, his entire family, and his health. And while the souls had the consolation of knowing that their five sons had died in a noble cause, the cause of defending uh, a nation from an aggressor, uh, Job can find no rationale behind his suffering. And while the souls had surviving daughters to take care of them uh, in their uh, old age, Job is left with no one, no one who identifies with him in his troubles. Yes, he has these friends who've come to him, and we said uh, last time that they were genuine friends. Uh, we're not to think that their friendship was uh, for their own advantage or that it was superficial. They were genuine friends, but their comfort, however well-intentioned, falls well short of the mark, as we'll see. Uh, so much so that <coughs> Job's uh, friends or Job's comforters that has become a term to be uh, uh, a Job's comforter is to be somebody uh, who brings uh, words which are of no help at all, but simply, indeed, worsen the situation. And yet, uh, the speeches of the comforters are complex. 
and we can't just simply write them all off. Uh, they are intermingled with uh, good words. Uh, they are broadly orthodox in all that they say. Uh, the New Testament uh, quotes and echoes uh, uh, in two cases from Eliphaz's speech, as we'll see later. And yet, the net effect is that of rubbing vinegar into Job's wounds. And his response ultimately in chapter 6, verse 21 is, Now you too have proved to be of no help. Well, if it was bad with Eliphaz, it's going to get ten times worse as the dialogue continues. And they become more and more impatient with Job holding on to his integrity. Now, a large section, we're going to look at uh, Eliphaz's speech and we're going to consider, uh, as we go through it, those aspects of what Eliphaz says, which are good. And there's a great deal of good in what Eliphaz says. But Job doesn't find the words helpful at all. So as we consider Job's response, we're going to see where it was that Eliphaz fell short in being a solid counsellor and friend to Job. And then, uh, thirdly, we're going to look at the missing piece. And the missing piece uh, is the cross of Calvary. It's the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which, uh, as it's expounded by Paul, has implications for the suffering that uh, forgiven, ransomed people uh, encounter, and which is purposeful in the light of Jesus' work. Remember, uh, in all of this, that Job is regarded as a righteous man. Uh, he is not perfect, but uh, the important thing is that he is not suffering on account of sin. Uh, he is righteous in the sense that he is a man who uh, believes in sacrifice, has made sacrifice for his children and presumably always for himself, and seeks to walk uprightly before the Lord. And the, the great enigma is, why is this man suffering in such an acute form and his friends want to continually point to undisclosed sin. Okay, uh, Eliphaz uh, and the others have sat uh, in stony silence for seven days, stunned by Job's appearance. Job, uh, chapter 6, verse 21, uh, will accuse them of being afraid as they came near him. You see something dreadful and you're afraid, he says. Uh, but Job's anguished lament, and when we looked at chapter 3, it was such a, a beautifully poignant outpouring uh, in all honesty of, of his condition and his desire to see his life ended. And this has prompted Eliphaz, who is probably the eldest of the three, to speak first. His opening words are ominous. If someone ventures a word with you, Will you be impatient? So he's going to say something which he anticipates will bring a back, um, uh, a pushback. But his opening words are nevertheless uh, fear. Uh, he, he seeks to appreciate the fact that Job has lived a righteous life. And he points to his piety. And his description of Job's life is actually the description of a model believer. Think of how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. 
Here's a picture of someone mature in the faith who is able to have been a help, a counsellor with wise words, somebody who has had compassion on those weaker and has been enabled to strengthen them. And we think as Eliphaz goes on, Eliphaz, if only you had been more like Job and had been ready to strengthening, to strengthen uh, the faltering. But instead of that, Eliphaz ultimately wants to uh, press on Job uh, his own neatly packaged theological explanation for why Job is suffering. Uh, And the key for what Eliphaz will say and the others after him is verse 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? So you see the implication there. If you're living a good, good life, uh, you're not, you'll be exempt from uh, the sufferings of this world to a large extent. Uh, and on the other hand, you will be blessed. You'll, you'll prosper materially as well as spiritually. Now, that is, that's a teaching which resonates with a lot of the Old Testament. Uh, we have to acknowledge that. Uh, go to many of the Psalms and you'll find uh, this kind of thing. Psalm 37. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. Then verse 25 of Psalm 37. I was young and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Now, this is a doctrine uh, to which Job holds, he subscribes to this, obviously, as much as do his friends. And Eliphaz is saying to Job, well, you be consistent with what you believe. Uh, Your life should give you hope. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Now, at this point, Eliphaz seems to be taking Job's uh, upright living on face value. He's going to come to question that, but at this point uh, he's viewing it positively and saying, well, you can appeal to God on the basis of your upright living. Uh, now, this, this system, uh, which seems to chime in with what the Bible says, but is altogether too neatly packaged and doesn't take account of righteous suffering, or, nor does it take account of God's timescale, Uh, goes like this. God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. All that takes place in the world is under his direction. God is also just and fair. Therefore, he always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness. And, and, And here's the rub. He does so immediately and in this life. Therefore, According to this way of thinking, if one is suffering, it must be because one has sinned in some way. And of course, on the other side, if I'm prospering, it must be because I'm good and God is blessing me. Now, again, there's a lot that's true in that. There's a lot that you can't quibble with. God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And uh, we would have to say that we admire, in many ways, the uh, the words of Job and Job's comforters because they acknowledge God's sovereignty uh, even over unpleasant things. There's no mealy mouth talk about God simply permitting 
uh, bad things to happen. Now, that's, that is very often the modern way for Christians to evade grappling with the kind of hard issues that Job and his friends have to grapple with in these pages. So a typical response today would be, God gives us free will, but God is too much of a gentleman to influence what we do. God simply permits bad things to happen, and he's on hand to help us sort out the consequences of our bad actions. And it's the same with natural catastrophe. God does not cause these events. God is detached from his creation. God allows the the world to operate under natural scientific laws which are exempt from his interference. He doesn't interfere with with the world. That's naive and primitive. But the best that we can take from it all is that in these natural catastrophes, God's with us in the midst of the mess. Now, that, that way of thinking is actually dangerously close to uh, an unorthodox view, which we call deism, uh, which is a view that, yes, believes that there's a God, but that he's not involved with his creation. So God created the world, he kind of started it up, and he lets it run under its own natural laws and principles. But God is up there and is not involved in the world he created. A distant God, and it's not the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible is intimately involved with all that happens, including calamities. And uh, there are many verses that you could turn to. One of the best known, Amos 3, verse 6. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Anticipated answer, yes, he has. God is firmly in the driving seat. God has freely ordained whatsoever comes to pass. So, Eliphaz has got that right. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the sufferings that Job is going through at this moment. And God is just, yes, we agree with that, and God does oppose the wicked. Uh, verses 10 and 11 picture, the, this is chapter uh, 4, picture the ungodly roaring like lions, but God, Eliphaz says, will break their teeth. God is just and he is on the side of the righteous. So, so far so good. And then you have this uh, rather weird section. If you look at verses 12 onwards in chapter 4, uh, <clears throat> we come across this strangely spooky passage. And we're in an eerie, threatening mood. We're in the atmosphere of the horror movie. There's a terror a palpable terror before anything is actually being announced, before we know what uh, is causing it. The hair on Eliphaz's body stands on end. A form appears and there's a hushed voice. There's an unbearable build-up of tension. But then there is this kind of collapse into anticlimax. We're expecting something very profound. This is obviously going to be a a special revelation. What do we hear? Well, we hear that uh, man cannot be more righteous than God. Well, that's 
hardly news, is it? And as the, the voice goes on, the point that is being made seems to be that even a blameless man like Job cannot claim to be perfect, and if he's not perfect, then he must expect that he will have his share of God's punishment for his imperfections. Now, whilst Eliphaz is trying to, uh, you know, squeeze, lever Job into his neat system, uh, it's kind of absurd to, to say that the extreme suffering and anguish and loss that Job has encountered uh, is simply because he has fallen slightly short of God's righteousness. Uh, and it makes us suspect the origin of Eliphaz's uh, voice. All of the, the suggestion is that it is God's voice. Of course, he doesn't actually uh, say that, but uh, he implies and, and, and wants to uh, have Job believe that this is uh, a, a supernatural word that he's received. Chapter 5, Eliphaz is continuing uh, to build on this assumption that everything that happens falls in line with this uh, theological system of deserving. And what Job needs to do is to be realistic. Job needs to submit uh, to it all because, after all, verse 2, chapter 5, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. Bad things happen to people who get above their station and think that they're exempt from being punished by God. I've seen it before, says Eliphaz. The fool's house was cursed, his children far away from safety, crushed in court without a defender. Verse 6. Hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Uh, these are kind of difficult verses. What he seems to be saying here is that uh, the troubles that we have are not caused by nature or our hostile Environment, So they don't spring from the ground. And yet, nevertheless, uh, the fact remains, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly up. One of these verses we're so familiar with. And it seems to be implying, again, that God is the cause of the human suffering. So it's not the, the natural environment. They don't arise from the soil. But uh, nevertheless, they're there. So it must be God who's sending them Job's way. Eliphaz continues, verses 9 to 16. God is the God who is involved with his creation. Agreed. Uh, verse 10. His providence sends us rain and irrigation water. Agreed. His providence raises and lowers men and women of rank. Agreed. He catches, verse 13, the wise in their craftiness. Uh, God outwits the, the craftiness of the wicked. Now, that's, that's actually quoted uh, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19. So it's remarkable, isn't it? This, this uh, friend who is gushing so much that's not helpful to Job, nevertheless has a lot of truth in what he says to the extent that the New Testament uh, quotes him. From verse 17 to the end of his speech, Eliphaz uh, is giving Job the advice of being sub be submissive to the Lord's discipline. Now you see the way that he's shifted. Uh, he's moved from saying at the beginning, uh, Job, you're a, an upright man, so your best uh, course of action is to appeal to God on the basis of your righteousness. But all along he's suspecting that uh, Job must have sinned because uh, you don't have suffering without sin. 
And therefore, it must be God correcting him. It must be God's discipline. So there's been a shift uh, in his argument. Again, it's a biblical possibility. Verse 17, look at that. Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. I, I hope, I hope that uh, echoes in your mind because we weren't uh, so long ago uh, studying Hebrews chapter 12 uh, where we have that, that very sentiment. Don't despise uh, the discipline of the Lord. So again, it's true. This is what God is doing to you, Eliphaz says. And there's a, there's a blessing coming. Hold on to that hope. The God who disciplines, uh, God is the same God who binds up what he wounds and heals what he injures. You will know rescue from calamity, ransom from famine, protection from gossip, deliverance from destruction. Uh, verse 23, uh, the stones of the field uh, in covenant. You will have a covenant with the stones of of the field and the wild animals will be at peace with you. Stones of the field uh, seems to be uh, a picture of the, the, the resistance that the land makes to cultivation. The first thing that people have to do if they're going to, to grow crops or plant a vineyard is clear the land of stones. So to have a covenant with the stones of the field is to uh, be at peace with the land. No farm animals will be missing be many children and grandchildren and Job himself will go to the grave in full vigour like sheaves gathered in season. Again, uh, many beautiful expressions of God's blessing. All very beautiful, to a large part, orthodox. But as far as the kind of counsel that Job is looking for, useless. Let's turn to Job's response now and see why that is. Job wants his friends, verse uh, 2, uh, to know just the, the scale of the anguish that he is feeling. If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, which surely outweigh the sand of the sea. No wonder my words have been impetuous. See, he's acknowledging in chapter 3 that uh, he perhaps was, he was sailing close to the wind in, in uh, pouring out his soul uh, in this lament. But his suffering has been awful. Uh, it's been such a dreadful diet of suffering that he's been unable to, uh, to feed on it, unable to, to accept it. And so we have the, this picture of uh, a donkey uh, Bring before inedible food. Uh, and just as the, the wild donkey uh, brays, or the ox uh, who has no grass uh, uh, roars, so Job, in the anguish of his soul, has cried out. He's rebelled against that which he is being asked uh, to have as his diet. He's longed simply to be cut down. Uh, and notice that his longing is so that he might not have spoken against the Holy One. He would have gone to his grave uh, without uh, that dreadful thing that his wife urged him to do, which was to curse God and die. He would have died in integrity. But, and here's the thing, even if he had done that, uh, even uh, if he had 
forsaken the fear of the Almighty, verse 14. A, a man like him should be able to count on the devotion of his friends. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even although he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. And this is what Job is, is longing for in his suffering, and that is what his friends are denying him. They're not loving him as they ought. They're not exhibiting the compassion that Job's hungering for. Uh, that sense of being there for someone uh, because that person really matters and being there with a commitment that regardless of the outcome of this situation, I can be counted to be your friend through it all. The arrival of his friends must have been such a welcome sight to Job. But their frozen silence for a week after they were stunned by his appearance. And then Eliphaz's empty words have been an enormous disappointment to Job. And Job says he's felt like the traveller going through the desert uh, who thought that he was coming upon a wadi filled with water only to find it is dry as dust. When he frames his complaint in verses 25 to 27, it's that he's spoken honest words, but they haven't taken him seriously. They've been heartless. He says, you would even cast lots for the fatherless. So that's interesting, isn't it? That, that's, that's Job's first complaint in response to uh, one of his friends. They have lacked compassion. They've lacked a, a, a true empathy. And I guess if, if we are to be of any, any use at all in, in comforting uh, Christian brothers and sisters who are going through the mill, that is the, the, the prime requirement uh, asked of us, that we would, uh, as far as we can, seek to enter into uh, what they're going through. And that we would affirm the fact that we are truly their friend. That we will be with them uh, no matter what the outcome is. We stand by them in the midst of that. Now Eliphaz failed to do that. And because he failed to do that, uh, his words, which as we've seen, were in many ways biblical words, failed to comfort Job. In fact, uh, because of his lack of compassion, sometimes his words were stunningly insensitive. Uh, for example, his mention of God laughing at destruction, uh, finding none of his livestock missing, and having many children, uh, in verses 22 to 25 of chapter 5. Think of the rank insensitivity of mentioning the very things that Job has just lost. He's lost his children. He did lose all his possessions. They were all taken. And for him, for Eliphaz to, to, to blithely mention these things uh, was like rubbing salt into uh, the open wound of Job. So uh, Eliphaz's first failure is that he, he fails to demonstrate love for his friend. But secondly, he doesn't engage his mind with Job's problem. 
for all his early words about uh, knowing that Job has been an upright man, he can't keep from suggesting that Job must be experiencing God's correction. Now, what Eliphaz uh, has, has done, what sometimes we, we all feel, we, we all can, can do at times, is to, to come to someone who is suffering with our own prepackaged remedy for that person. So we have uh, thought in advance about the situation and we, we come with, uh, with a solution from the Bible but which doesn't necessarily mesh with where they're at. And Eliphaz comes uh, with what we termed last time a theology of retribution. So uh, if someone's suffering, it must mean somewhere that, God, that uh, the person has done something wrong. I remember once before we call this uh, sound of music theology. Does that ring a bell? Uh, Maria in the sound of music, uh, when she uh, finds that uh, Captain Von Trapp has fallen in love with her and he declares his love, uh, she bursts into song. Uh, and essentially she's bursting into a song with a th- theology of retribution. Uh, and you'll recall the song, uh, For here, oh, perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth, because here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Now, of course, it's not just Maria who thinks that way. Everybody, essentially, uh, until they discover the grace of God, is thinking that way. That you do good and you're rewarded. No, it's karma. It's it's, uh, in different guises and different religions. But it's not biblical. Grace uh, has given the lie to the fact that uh, there is this uh, continually neat correspondence with uh, something turning out well for us, uh, being a reward for some past good, or conversely, things going wrong for us, being punishment on some past sin. And Eliphaz, in his neatly packaged theology, has got no place for the real problem, which is the problem of the righteous person who is suffering. Uh, dreadfully. Uh, had he listened more compassionately to, to Job, he could have seen that Job's suffering is extreme and it's in the face of a life lived with integrity. And Eliphaz would at least have tried to grapple with that problem. But instead, we come to Eliphaz, uh, who is presented to us as the, the confident dogmatist. He is quite convinced that uh, he has to be right. And so his closing words are, We have examined this, and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. That is nauseatingly self-assured. There's no place in his neat neat package theology for uh, this case of righteous suffering. And of course, most sickeningly is... uh, the invoking, or at least the 
the, the suggestion that he's had special revelation uh, in this nighttime vision. Of course, if God has spoken to him and has affirmed his theological package, who can say anything against him? How many sincere Christians have been crushed by people who have claimed to be prophets or have delivered their words in such a way as to, to purport to speak from God? How many sincere Christians have believed that there must be something in their lives for which they are being punished and have a weight of guilt added to what they're already suffering? Well, in chapter 7, Job turns and addresses God. And very quickly, verses 1 to 10, his cry is essentially, why do I matter? Why do I matter? My, my life's just over in a flash. It's like a, uh, a weaver's shuttle. His days are filled with pain and misery and futility. His life's but a breath. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and they come to an end without hope. Why do I matter? And insignificant. And then... The second half of the chapter, uh, the most restless part of all, Job crying out, God, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Why do you examine me from morning till evening? Job feels as though he is uh, like one of the citizens in uh, Orwell's 1984, you know, with uh, Big Brother is watching you. Cameras on everybody, uh, night and day, every movement being surveyed and Job vents his anger in the most audacious way he's addressing God now if I have sinned what have I done to you O watcher of men why have you made me your target have I become a burden to you now there's a, a whole issue and we can't look at the issue of Job's anger tonight. God willing, we'll look at it next time. But what <clears throat> uh, I want to finish on is the, the missing element from the situation. Uh, what Eliphaz can't bring yet is comfort and what Job himself has no sight of, which is, of course, the cross of Christ. Now, we saw earlier that the cross presents with us the, the ultimate revelation of the, the righteous and innocent man suffering uh, extreme, incomparable anguish. But it also, as well as doing that, the cross points us forward to one reason why God's people suffer where there is no sin to account for that suffering. And this is the big question in, in Job. Let's not forget, behind the scenes, Satan's working overtime to convince Job that God is punishing him. Now that's often a burden that believers bear also. God is punishing me. Let us not allow Satan to add that to whatever we may be asked to go through. Jesus has taken our punishment on the cross of Calvary. It is not correct for Christians to speak of being punished 
by God in that sense. There remains no punishment, no judicial punishment for the one who has already been ransomed, absolved, justified by sacrifice. Now we may experience discipline to purge out sin. And we, we were, we were uh, seeing that in, in Hebrews. Discipline for uh, ongoing sin. But that is different because there is no hostility in God's discipline. There's no judicial element in God's discipline. But most importantly, our suffering may simply be for the glory of God. And there's a key verse in Colossians 1, verse 24. Paul speaks here of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Every, every suffering that Christians go through is, in a sense, undeserved suffering, you could say, because uh, the deserts of our wrong, the deserts of our sin, have already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And yet, it is necessary, the suffering, in God's wisdom, for the bringing in of the gospel in a needy world. Sometimes we suffer opposition. Sometimes we, we, we simply suffer uh, through health or, or family circumstances. When the Christian suffers in that way and bears it in godly fashion, the Christian is enabling the watching world to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that the watching world may not by looking on at rank after rank of happy, smiling Christians settled happily in their families and looking very prosperous. That is the sense in which Paul speaks of filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Paul saw it as a privilege to suffer for Christ in lots of different contexts because people were seeing the difference that Jesus made. Our sufferings are not redemptive in the sense that they pay for someone's sin. Only Jesus' suffering can pay for anyone's sin. But they can and they do advance the plan of salvation. That's the missing piece. That's what Job could not know, not Eliphaz. But friends, that's what we know. And that may well be part of the balm that we may bring to suffering friends who wonder, why am I being called to pass through this? May God bless to us his precious word.